Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It's Dr. Sophie to our weekly podcast. I appreciate all your support, all your listening. I get all your emails. I get all your calls. And I really do appreciate it because it really provokes a lot of thought. It helps us plan and know what it is that you guys need so that we can all work together and be a safer place to live and raise kids. So last time we talked, we were talking about neuroeconomics. We learned exactly what it is. We learned and understood better how and why we make the decisions that we do based on our neuroeconomics. We also discussed the biochemical reactions and the uh, use of and applications of oxytocin, which is a chemical in our bodies, and how that treats depression and social anxiety and how that plays a role in how we navigate emotionally and through our lives. We also talked about why the same person can be a really sweet person one moment and then a really mean person the next. I'm sure we've all been there. So take a listen. You're going to learn a lot. And all of the other podcasts are along with this one on my website at www.drsophie.com or on my iTunes free app, Dr. Sophie on Call. So take a listen, download, and help yourself and learn. This week's topic, however, is something different. Emotional first aid. You know, it, it really does make sense when you think about it. When we have emotional pain or psychic pain or we feel anxious or we feel depressed or we feel like sometimes there's no hope and we want to give up, those are really injuries of our psychological apparatus. And so it only makes sense if you cut your knee, you put a Band-Aid on it or you bandage it or you attend to it. Same deal with any psychological issue, and that's what treatment is about, and that's what early detection is, and red flags, and all those kinds of things. And today we're going to be talking about emotional first aid. We're going to understand what exactly is a psychological wound. We are going to see uh, how does failure distort our perception of ourselves? Like, does that really wound us forever? Is that a long-lasting scar? Is that something that can go away? How do you get it to go away? Is early intervention and treatment key to getting rid of it or is it just nothing you can do in its genetics we're also going to learn how can building up our self-esteem act like an emotional immune system and make us more resilient all the all these are really great concepts we're going to talk about them today you're going to leave learning something and you're also going to be able to call in if you want or email me or voicemail me or whatever you're going to do but we're going to talk about emotional first aid today at one 855 now or one 767 4966 Every caller will receive a free signed copy of my book, Side by Side, the Revolutionary Mother-Daughter Program for Conflict-Free Communication. All right, joining me today is a guest expert. We're going to be talking about emotional first aid, Guy Winch or Dr. Guy Winch. He's a licensed psychologist, speaker, and author. He has a new book coming out that I'll let him tell you about, but he has another book that I think is out already. It's called The Squeaky Wheel. Complaining the right way to get results, improve your relationships, and, and enhance your self-esteem. He's going to tell us a little bit about that. And there's a few other little questions I want to ask him about his many other talents. He's well-educated. He's writing a blog, and he's from New York. Are you with me, Dr. Winch? I am indeed. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining me. You're very welcome. So tell me a little bit about you and your hunger for emotional wound healing stuff. <laughs> well, I have a private practice in Manhattan, and um, what I see every day is that people, you know, a lot of people come to therapists to deal with the big stuff, and they're told not to sweat the small stuff, 
and they don't know what to do with the medium-sized stuff. Yeah, in exactly. In the sense that, you know, we, we, uh, we know how to take care of physical uh, injuries when we get them, right. but when we get psychological ones on a daily basis, like rejection and failure and guilt and things that really impact us, we have no idea how to treat them. So tell me, like, I was just saying before you jumped on that, just like we scrape our knee and we, t- we tend to that, we bandage it, whatever, we got to tend to emotional issues and psychological issues. And so you're saying the small ones are important to address? I'm saying that these small ones can fester. You know, usually you can have a small cut on your arm, but if you don't put some kind of antibacterial ointment on it, if you let it go, it might heal and it might fester. And it's the same with psychological wounds. You know, they're, sometimes they're small ones, but they can really fester if we don't take care of them. And sometimes they'll go away, but sometimes they'll nag at us. A few days later, we'll be thinking about them. A week later, we'll start brooding about them. And those are really signs that we need to add some kind of psychological treatment to make the wound heal. Got it. Because are you also saying that if you don't address it, it really has the potential to grow and layer? Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. That if you don't address it, it can grow and it can accumulate. Because the kinds of wounds I talk about in this new book are the things that we really experience on a practically a daily a daily basis. I mean, we have social media today, so people talk about this in sessions. You know, they, will, they, they, they liked all their friends' vacation pictures, and they posted theirs, and their friends didn't like those back, and they feel really rejected and, and really insulted. And those are you know, a dime a dozen. We get that kind of stuff every day, but sometimes it can really accumulate. It can really nag at us, and it can have this kind of cascade effect that can end up really impacting our mental health and our physical health as well. And would you say that the very fact that even that small thing is irritating or becomes a wound is an issue, or does it just happen on its own? Is it predetermined? In fact, what I say in the book is that in many aspects, we are wired that way. We are wired to respond to these things. Um, Sometimes people from these small rejections on Facebook or on Twitter, on social media, can feel like, why am I so upset by that? You know, right. sit in the session and say, I was so upset, but I must be some kind of loser if I'm so upset. And I, right. I really explain, because there's a lot of research about these things, it explains that we're absolutely wired this way, that there are things that are happening in our brain, even with these small rejections, that, you know, the rejection might be small, but what's happening in our brains can be pretty big, and that there are reasons we respond the way we do, and adding a lot of self-judgment and self-criticism on top of that wound, um, is not the best way to go. Okay, I, I believe that. And then are you saying also then that even if we're not wired that way genetically, a trauma can help your brain rewire itself from the very fact of that trauma, which will then respond in a certain way to little things? Yes, traumas in general can rewire our brain and they can make us more sensitive to things. They can reactivate old wounds. There are all kinds of things that can happen as a result of those kinds of things. All right, so it's not just genetics, it's also environment. Right, and when I say, by the way, that we're wired that way, I don't mean genetic predispositions. I mean, literally, we are wired that way. There was research done about rejections. You know, scientists wanted to find out, well, why do rejections hurt so much? And so they took functional MRIs of, you know, brain scans in which we can actually see what happens in the brain while a person is doing something or performing a task. And they had subjects, and this is going to sound rough, and it is rough, but they had subjects who had just had a very painful breakup, who were just broken up with, sit in the MRI machines with pictures of the person who broke up with them, reimagining and reliving the intense rejection they felt, which is, I mean, wow, if you volunteered for that study, good for you. Yeah, really. (laughs) 
They, they were well compensated, actually. I read the bylaws. I'm sure. They were well compensated. But what they found was that the same areas in the brain got activated as get activated when we experience physical pain. In other words, there's something about the rejection pathways and how we respond to rejection that piggybacks on pain rejection, on, on pain pathways, rather, in the brain, so that it really mimics physical pain, hurt feelings, actually hurt. Got it. So you're saying not just genetics, you're saying this is the way we're wired, then you have the genetic layer, then you could have a trauma layer. Absolutely. Those are the three layers. Got it. Okay. So this accent makes you sound like you're really official. Where's it from? <laughs> like I'm official? Yeah, like you're <laughs> Freud or something. It scares me. Well, I feel if you have a quasi-European ac you know, accent, the least you can do is go into psychology. Absolutely. There's a certain obligation. Yeah, there's a validity to it now. All right, so um, how do we treat these psychological wounds? I mean, what, what, do you th what do we tell people? Do you run to a shrink every time? No, actually, I mean, and I, it's not about running to a shrink every time because we run to a shrink for the big things. I mean, look, we know when we get a cut if it's deep enough that it requires stitches, and we know if we sprain a muscle, if you know, the ice packs and whatever we're doing isn't helping and we should go see a physical therapist, and we know when our cold has gotten bad enough that we should go see a doctor. We, can, we have that distinguishing line when it comes to our physical injuries, and we really don't have it at all when it comes to psychological ones. But it's the same right. principle in that you really don't have to run to a doctor for every little thing, but it doesn't mean you should ignore every little thing. There's that middle ground between, you know, you're, you're not going to put a bandage on a, uh, if you prick your finger with a needle, but you will if you slice, a, if you, you know, slice a bit of it with a, with a knife. And so the same thing here, if, if uh, something happens to you, um, if it's rejection or failure, or you're experiencing loneliness, or you're caught in a cycle of brooding, or, uh, you know, you, you are, uh, you, you have your self-esteem is feeling low, you're experienced a loss, whatever it is, if something happened, if you feel you're bouncing back, terrific. If you feel you're not, or if typically you don't bounce back well from those kinds of things, then there are steps you should take and that you can take that will make you feel better, that will ease the emotional pain you feel, make sure it doesn't get worse and really prevent any kind of damage from accumulating and affecting your, your uh, mental health down the road. Got it. Okay, we're going to talk about those steps in a minute. I want to read you an email I just got. Greg from New York is asking, I just lost my mother very suddenly and unexpectedly, and I'm having some trouble bouncing back from the emotional low. How should I be dealing with the loss? I personally would rather not talk about it, but my wife thinks it's important for the healing process that I do. What wow, we... so that's a great email. So one of the chapters in the book indeed is about loss and trauma, and the research there is really interesting because what it tells us is very different than what common wisdom tells us. Common yeah. wisdom tells us what Greg's wife is saying. Right. That you have to talk about it, otherwise it will fester. But what the research shows us is that people who feel the urge to talk about loss when it happens and trauma should. However, People like Greg who feel the urge not to talk about it, who actually don't want to talk about it, who want to get on with things, as it were, do better when they don't talk about it. Because Why? Then, for them, actually forcing them to talk about something they don't want to talk about can reactivate that wound, can uh, bring forth emotional pain of the kind that they're actually able to keep back and keep in abeyance when they're not talking about it. It's this phenomenon we see, and again, this is only for people whose natural inclination is, I actually don't want to talk. We'll see sometimes that, you know, when somebody will be holding it together and then somebody will be going over and giving them a big hug and then they'll burst into tears. But if they're able to hold it together and if they're able to keep the emotional 
pain at bay, then, and they're able to get on with life. I mean, if they're getting stuck, no. But if they're able to get on with things, and their proclivity is, I don't want to talk about it, the research shows that these people do better when they do not. Okay. So then are they at a higher risk of hitting a wall if it's just sitting in there? Or as long as they're living, they're okay, and that's the sign they're fine? It's the latter. I mean, the research, well, there was research done, uh, this research project started in August of 2001, a month before 9-11, and it happened to be tracking 2,000 people online in terms of their emotional well-being. And when, 2000, and, and when the, the September 11th uh, you know, uh, attacks happened, they allowed people to post their feelings and share their feelings and how they were feeling. And then they could track them for two years, and they found that the people who posted less about their feelings, uh, who didn't write about their feelings, did much better in the long run than those who did. In other words, it wasn't a problem for those people who didn't want to share to not share, and they ended up doing better. And so forcing somebody who's not really uh, in the space to want to talk about things and process things to do that can actually be bad for them, and they might do very well if they're allowed to just get on with things. Okay, and then they either may or may not ever get that place to the place where they want to talk about it. Right. Again, follow your natural inclination in these okay. kinds of situations. All right. So tell me, in general, what are these steps to deal with these little wounds at home? Well, it depends on the wound. My, my book, it's called Emotional First Aid, Practical Strategies for Treating Failure, Rejection, Guilt, and Other Everyday Psychological Injuries. And I, by the way, I love the blue Band-Aid. Yes, well, <laughs> no, that's not my responsibility. There was an art department at Penguin. Very nice. Um, but, um, they, um, but the book is divided into seven chapters. Each of these topics has a chapter, and each chapter is divided into two sections. The first explains the emotional kinds of wounds that we sustain when something happens, like a rejection or a loss. Well, what actually happens to us? In what ways are we wounded? And then the second part of the chapter provides steps for treating each of these specific wounds that are laid out in the first part of the chapter. Love it. So it's actually not a one general thing. Each topic has specific wounds that it, that it creates and needs specific um, you know, approaches to manage those kinds of wounds. And some of the approaches are, can be done at home and some have to be done in the ER or your shrink. <laughs> right? All of those can be done at home. Oh, very nice. All of them. And they actually, some of them do, in, a lot of them do involve writing. I'm a big uh, fan of writing. To me, writing is how we absorb psychological messages uh, best. And so some of these exercises do require writing. And some people will say to me, well, you know, I skipped the writing. I did it in my head. It's not effective. When I'm saying in the book, write it, write it. It's not effective to do it in your head. Writing is how we often absorb psychological messages. It's like looking at food on the counter when you're, hang when, when you're hungry but failing to eat it and then saying, well, I'm still hungry. Yes, well, you didn't absorb it. And so writing is what will help you absorb the messages. It's a very important part of some of the things in the book. And, and you recommend that over reading them? Yes. Well, I want you to write, and then I want you to read what you wrote. But you actually have to think about things. You have to make some, you know, have some thoughts in your head and organize your thoughts. Then you have to write them down. Then you should read them. And all that together is an effective way of giving yourself a certain message that you have to give yourself in some of these situations. And really getting it integrated. Yes. Got it. Okay, let's take a voicemail. Hold on. Hi, Dr. Sophie. My name is uh, Randy. I currently work in a profession where... Uh, you experience failure a lot before you um, actually succeed. And as of late, I've felt my self-confidence uh, waning a little bit. I'm just wondering uh, if there's anything I can do to help build my confidence up again. Thanks a lot. Huh. What do you think? 
Ah, I think a lot. Good. Um, <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try and be brief. No, failure okay. is a big chapter in the book, and it's an actually a really important question, because when we fail, it can impact our confidence. But what also impacts our confidence is how we take the failure. If we take the failure as we should, which is you fail at a specific thing in a specific moment in a specific context, that's it. Um, great. But if we actually generalize it to mean, well, what does this mean about me, and what does this mean about my abilities, and maybe I can't, and maybe it's impossible, then it's not so great. So what you have to do when you fail and when you're dealing with failure is two things. A, you have to minimize that bleeding. You have to really keep it very specific, and then look at failure as a roadmap. Failure means there's, there are lessons there to be learned about what you have to do differently next time. You really have to dissect the failure and figure out, well, what do I need to change? What's the approach I need to change? A lot of people will tell me, oh, you know, in college, I did the cramming method. I, I didn't study much, and then I crammed, and it really didn't work well. But then I did the same thing the next semester, and the same thing the next semester. If the method isn't working, you have to change it. So look at the failure, is my advice to that person, and make a list of everything you can learn from it. What do you need to do differently? How do you need to approach things? What kind of better planning do you need? What kind of better effort must you, involve, you, know, must you invest? What, what uh, you know, lessons can you derive? What, what more information do you need? What more skill sets do you need to build? Um, so that's the first thing to do. Really learn everything you can from failure because it's a wonderful teacher and we need to look at, uh, look at it as a teacher. The second thing is, in terms of your confidence, is um, make a list of all the aspects of this task. And again, he, he didn't mention what the job is, but whatever it is, make a list of all the aspects of the task that actually are in your control, despite the fact that you weren't doing well and that you were failing. And so effort is in your control, and right. preparation is in your control, yeah. and um, how you uh, educate yourself is in your control, and whether you can learn from other people who are succeeding about how what they're doing differently is in your control. Make a big list of all those things in, that are in your control, and remind yourself, okay, this is what I need to work on. And then it's just about learning rather than about failing. Got it. And really, you're saying keep it specific to that issue. Very, very, very specific. Okay. So then if left untreated, can something like a minor psychological injury really have a lasting effect on your mental health or our mental health? Yeah. Well, let's look at failure as an example. So there's really interesting research about what happens to us when we fail. And one of the things that happens is that our perceptions of the goals that we have actually change and get distorted a little bit. So the same goal seems more difficult. They did uh, a study where they took people to a football field and had them kick an American football um, over a goalpost. The goalpost was 10 uh, yards away. Uh, it wasn't marked, though. And then they asked them, after they did a series of 10 kicks, well, how far away is that goalpost and how high up is it? And what they saw is that the people who succeeded at the task were much more accurate in estimating how far and how high the goalpost was, and those that failed saw it as much higher and much further away. In other words, there's a certain distortion that set in which made it seem like a more difficult task once they failed at it, even though the task hadn't changed. And the other part of that distortion is it also distorts how we feel about our abilities. Um, and there are lots of studies uh, that were done that demonstrated that once we fail at something, we start to question our own abilities in an unconscious way, such that we then are unable to bring forth the effort that we could or unable to utilize the abilities we do have because we're convinced we're just not that good at something, when in fact that wasn't true. 
So you really have to be careful because when you fail and you're not taking corrective steps, it can really set you up to feel as if you're incapable, to feel as if your goals are unreachable, to develop test anxiety or performance pressure. And so it's something you really want to pay attention to and to handle as best as possible. Right. And, and that's what I was going to ask you. Like, is some of the distortion related to the anxiety that's created from the original failure that it almost paralyzes you to focus? I think that the anxiety is a result of the distortion. I think the distortion happens right away. In other words, in that, in that example of the study with the people who are kicking the football, if you then ask them to do it again, they would be more anxious about it. But they right. would be more anxious because they failed and really estimated the goal as being more difficult. Right, and then that sets them up for another failure. Absolutely. And then it just kind of builds on itself. Very cyclical with failure. Yeah. Okay, that's great. So one more quick question, and we'll, I have another email for you. What is the smallest psychological injury you can think of? And do you have to be like hyper-conscious of even that little tiny thing? So look, I'll, I'll use the example of ejection because this is something that does come up all the time. And people say, you know, it was so upsetting because that person didn't retweet my tweet. Right. Or they didn't like my uh, vacation picture. By the way, I'll retweet so you don't have to worry. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, it's always good. Yeah. But, um, but to me, that's a very small injury, you know. And, and, but here's why I think it does need some kind of treatment. Because I say to people, well, you know, that friend of yours has two young kids. And if she was looking at her phone and at her Facebook uh, stuff while she was holding one baby in one arm and pushing the carriage with the other, she just didn't have the free finger to press the like button. Right. It doesn't mean she didn't see it. It, didn't mean, it doesn't mean she doesn't like it. And it doesn't mean the next time you see her, she won't say, well, I really love those vacation pictures. So jumping to the worst possible assumption that she saw it, she doesn't care, she's not interested, is completely unwarranted. So that to me is an example of a very small, minor thing, a nick as you were in terms of the emotional cuts and scrapes that we right. sustain in daily life. But even the little nick can kind of balloon because if then she's, you know, the person who's upset is not going to like any of the other person's stuff as retaliation, suddenly she'll introduce this tension into a friendship where none really exists. And that, that can have consequences. And so really my barometer is if you get over these things, if, you know, this, if that little nick stings for a little bit, but then you forgot it, then you get over it, great. If you're dwelling, if it's still painful, if you're not getting over it, if you're bashing yourself and your self-esteem into a pulp as a result of it, then you need to do something. Right. Okay. So tell me, then, what makes the difference between two people, one who won't be bothered by that lack of retweet and one that will be rejected or feeling that? Is it the three steps we talked about, the three layers? Number one, yes. But number two, that last layer is a learned layer. In other words, you, that person, one person might naturally think that, oh, she's probably too busy to press the like, but I'm sure she saw it, or she probably didn't see it, you know, think that more naturally. And another person is more likely to go to, oh, wow, she doesn't like me too. Right. And so, but the person, so the, per the first person probably doesn't need to use as much of these techniques because they, they, they're not as affected by them, although stuff will happen in life and pretty frequently in which they should. But the second person who is more affected by that can really learn these skills and when you apply them on a regular basis it really starts to change how you think and you much more automatically go to the explanation that doesn't mean that there's something bad about you or insufficient about you you learn different habits 
a mental health hygiene, you can call it, right. in which you are much more used to, um, you know, uh, boosting your self-esteem when it's low and not being too self-critical and not being too self-blaming. And, and you can learn those habits such that over time when you practice them enough, they come to you much more naturally. Right. And that can really change your whole approach to life. Yeah, and that's the toolbox they have to have. That's the toolbox. All right, I want to read you an email. Allison from Dallas is sending, for me, emotional pain can hurt just as much if not more than physical pain what are the differences to how our bodies process each type of pain well I, I I don't know if you heard what I said earlier but indeed she's completely completely right in that the two are extremely similar that when we look at brain scans of what happens to people in their brain when they're feeling emotional pain and when they're feeling physical pain the emotional pain usually is a result of being uh, rejected or ostracized or feeling alone um, then the two are extremely and extraordinarily similar. How they're different and where she's right again is that if you are uh, going to sit down and try and recall an incident where something very, very painful for you happened physically when you broke your leg or when you had this horrific toothache, something very painful happened to you, you'll be able to recall that it happened, but you won't be able to generate the same visceral response to that happening. You won't be able to generate that pain. Your body won't respond as though, it's if, as though it's in pain in that moment merely by the recollection. In other words, you can't, you, you can't like, um, you know, uh, tune in to that visceral channel when you're recollecting physical pain. But you can do that extremely well when you're recollecting emotional pain. Like in the study when people were asked to lie in the MRIs and look at these pictures of their, of their exes who had rejected them and remember and recall the intense rejection they felt, you can literally, you can literally bring up those feelings. You will feel horrific all over again. Your self-esteem will feel low. You will physically feel that emotional pain. So we can recall emotional pain much more vividly and much more viscerally than we can physical pain. And that's where it actually does win out. And it is stronger in that sense, as she wrote, than physical pain. All right. And there are MRIs they did or PET scans or? They did functional MRIs. Functional MRIs, they're not static scans. You're right. actually having somebody do a, t a task, think of something. They can be doing a math task or reliving a memory. And you want to see having a certain specific emotion. And you want to see what's happening in their brain when they're doing this math or feeling right. that emotion. Right. Yes. Got it. Okay. Let's take a voicemail. Hi, Dr. Sophie. My name is Cassidy. I'm calling from Culver City. And um, I actually wanted to call and ask you a question. I work with patients with acute anxiety disorders, you know, panic disorders, depression, social phobias, things like that. And I've found that, you know, as people with acute anxiety disorders, they don't respond well to emotional first aid soothing tactics, mostly because, you know, they can't calm themselves down. No one else can calm them down. So my question to you is, since I've found that, you know, these patients don't respond well to emotional first aid, is there anything else I can try that might work better? It would be great to hear your feedback. So thank you very much. Bye-bye. That's interesting. Yes. What, what do you think? Um, well, first of all, again, in my book, I, I make a distinction. At the end of each chapter, I talk about when this might be time to see a mental health professional. In other words, when we're beyond the realm of emotional first aid that you would apply at home, and when you should really consult somebody who's a professional. Um, and probably people with severe anxiety disorders or severe depression would probably benefit more from the help of a professional. However, a lot of the protocols that we use for severe anxiety disorders are educational by nature. They 
teach the person what is actually happening in their brain and in their body when they're experiencing these panic attacks. And once they understand that the flight or fight system is activated and that their sympathetic nervous system has just gotten activated, that they're responding in an evolutionary way as if a, a bear had just walked into the cave, albeit there's no bear and there's no cave, but that's what their bodies are telling them, that something terrible is about to happen, even though it's not, that it's a, a, a switch that got flipped incorrectly, once they know to understand what's happening in their bodies and they can understand that by breathing rapidly and by having shallow breathing, they're probably exacerbating the anxiety that they need to start focusing immediately on their breathing, breathing in and out more in a more controlled way, making sure to empty their lungs, really focusing in on their breathing, then those are the kinds of uh, um, uh, protocols that tend to work well with anxiety disorders but the person has to first you know understand that if you want to conquer this you have to understand what's going on with you because that's the only way you'll be able to do battle with it successfully i do agree it's a little beyond the realm of emotional first aid because like i said i think those are severe disorders right, where you right. do need to see a professional but even a professional in the protocols that we tend to use in those kinds of situations a lot of it is educational and a lot of it is really understanding what's happening to us because we tend to not understand what's happening to us yeah and I th i've been a firm believer of educating my patients as much as i can it empowers them absolutely all right so tell me what are your thoughts about loneliness and does it pose a greater risk on our physical health like compared to smoking? Yeah, that's an interesting thing that I discovered when I was doing the research about loneliness, that it's one of those things that we tend to think of it as, oh yeah, you know, it's a fact of life and some people are lonelier than others and maybe that's something happens when you get older. And, and actually loneliness is a really about a subjective experience because a lot of the people who report being lonely are actually married, they're actually in relationships. So they're not physically lonely, they're not objectively lonely, but internally they feel very emotionally or socially disconnected right, from the right. people around them. And what's really interesting about loneliness is it does a real number on our uh, health as well as our mental health. And on the health front, it actually increases our stress and our risks of cardiovascular disease. It increases our risk of developing Alzheimer's disease and of the disease progressing more rapidly when we do. And even more interestingly, it really impacts our immune system functioning. There's one study in which they gave college freshmen the flu shot, and they happened to give them questionnaires about loneliness, who felt lonely and who didn't. And they saw that the students that felt lonely had a much poorer response to the flu shot hmm. than those who didn't. And Interesting. So, yeah, when you look at all the ways in which it impacts our different physical systems, what, what the scientists who researched this concluded was that it poses as significant a risk to our long-term mental health that lonely people literally live fewer years than non-lonely people who have equal health risks. So it literally represents it's as much of a risk as cigarette smoking. And, you know, to remind everyone, cigarette packs come with big warnings from the Surgeon General to alert them that this is something that's dangerous to their health. But very few people who are lonely understand that this is something that's dangerous to their health, something they actually have to take steps to do something about, and that there are steps they can take to do something about. Got it. That's so, that's so powerful and helpful. And guilt, tell me a little bit about guilt. Well, guilt's an interesting one because guilt's a good guy in general, you know, because guilt preserves our relationships. It, it alerts us to when we're about to do or when we've done something that might be harmful to another person so that we can maybe not do it or take corrective action or apologize or take steps to atone in some kind of way. So guilt 
in the small doses is great. And this is true in psychology, as you know, in general, moderation, most things are terrific, too much or too little is usually not good. Um, so, but guilt is one of those. You know, in moderation, it's a great signal. It lets us know when we need to change something or what we need to do to appease someone. And so it really preserves our relationships, except when the guilt is excessive, when it's unresolved, then that signal that's flashing in our brain doesn't go off. And then it's literally like having a signal flash in your brain all the time. It's very difficult to concentrate. It's very difficult to focus. It's very difficult to enjoy life because right. you kind of feel that you shouldn't because you're feeling guilty. And you literally will find reasons, oh, I'm not going to go to the party because I have to do my hair that night or some kind of you know, bad excuse because you really don't feel like you should enjoy yourself. And it really poisons our relationships as well, because when, when we feel guilty about something we've done towards someone, and it's unresolved, either because, usually because the apologies we kind of offered weren't that good, and, and we can talk about that in a minute, but, but when it's unresolved, then we'll tend to want to avoid that person because they make us feel bad. And we'll tend to avoid, you know, I don't want to go to that restaurant because that reminds me of that person and I'll feel guilty. And I don't want to go to, uh, you know, this town because that's where it happened and I'll feel guilty there. And I don't want to think about this topic because, and so slowly but surely you actually withdraw from the very people you know, to whom you feel guilty, and it can really poison relationships in that way as well. Well, what about, I mean, what is your belief or thought about that connection of the guilt, the production of it, formulation, and a superego, ego kind of construct model? Well, um, look, I'm not a big uh, Freudian, but let's, just, uh, but let's use just the constructs because they're useful. So, you know, some people are much more guilt-prone. Their superego, as it was, um, you know, um, generates much more guilt. They're much more likely to feel bad if they feel they've done something to hurt another person. And often, whether they agree that they've done something or not, if the other person is feeling hurt, it could be the other person is oversensitive, or the other person loves inducing guilt or giving guilt trips, but the guilt trips will work with them. Right. Um, they, they will tend to be guilt-prone. They'll feel guilty way when they shouldn't. And if you say to them, okay, but if so-and-so, if this happened to the other person, do you think they should feel responsible? No, that's not their responsibility. Well, why do you? Well, because they're naturally very guilt-prone. So yes, there's a big difference there between people people who have these big super egos which make them feel overly guilty for things they really should not feel guilty about and people who have just a more moderate uh, kind of expression of their guilt that they'll feel guilty when there's good reason but they won't feel excessively guilty when there's not and is it a genetic thing the super ego that's overgrown you know that's a good question and i'm not sure of the answer i would imagine that like most things in our profession there's some kind of genetic predisposition there and some kind of life lesson uh, you know the nature nurture yeah that and the parenting yeah um, as, as we grow yeah i think there's a lot of parenting influence in it, a lot of that too yeah, early on the cultural influences obviously as well yeah. certainly certain cultures uh, are known to be more guilt-inducing just as a form of communication right uh, than others all right so what else you want to tell me before i ask you a few other questions about you. Um, what, what else do I want to tell you about me, or what else do you want to tell you before you ask me other questions? Before I ask you other questions. <laughs> about me. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I'm, uh, so, you know, I'm, I, I, I write a lot. I really enjoy writing. I have a, a blog on psychology today. I also blog for, for Huffington Post, and the links to all of those on my website at guywinch.com. And in my past, I've also, and slightly in my present, I've also uh, dabbled with um, stand-up comedy. Yeah, that's what I wanted to know about. Tell me all about that. Well, that came about, I mean, that was just one of those things. You know, I went skydiving once with the same goal in mind. Let's see if I can do it. Let's do it once. 
get it on video, and I will never have to do it again. Right. And so that was the goal with stand-up. Let's do it once, get it on video, and I'll never have to do it again. But unlike skydiving, which actually my feeling was, oh, good, I'm never going to have to do that again. Right. Um, <laughs> when it came to the stand-up, um, it was more of the good rush and less of the, you know, oh, my goodness uh, feeling. And it went really well, and I really enjoyed it. And I, I had made a bargain with myself that I would never talk about being a psychologist on stage, so I can keep my worlds very separate. I didn't want anyone who ever saw me uh, or anyone who I ever worked with to wonder, okay, am I going to tell him something that happened in my life and that's going to show up in his material? I wanted a very, very clear separation, so nothing anyone would tell me would show up. I don't discuss being a psychologist. But I really found that it was an amazing balance for me to, you know, to work with patients during the afternoon and the evening and then to go to clubs and just make really, I mean, I'm sure you've seen stand-up. We're not talking, very few jokes are about world peace. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's I got that. Stuff. It's light stuff. I found it a great balance, a great way to exercise a very, very different portion of my brain. And so I, I did it for quite a while. Very nice. Are you still doing it? I, it's a very difficult time-wise now because uh, with the writing and the, uh, and the publicity for the book. So I'll go and I'll, I'll do some shows when I have some new things I want to talk about, when I have, you know, I'll accumulate my ideas and then go and work them out, you know, a few times. But I used to be going, you know, four or five times a week performing, and obviously that's not something I can sustain. Ah, very nice. Before I let you go, what would you say are the top five things we should have in our psychological mental health medicine cabinet? Okay, well, the number one thing I think we need to have is the awareness that um, we, we sustain these psychological injuries and that there's something we can do about it. That awareness has to be the first thing because that's the primary thing that we lack. Okay. And the second thing that has to be in there is the understanding that a lot of the times it's us who are making these wounds worse. That we start out with something and then the damage is very much self-inflicted after that. And you know, you would never see someone, you know, taking an open wound and putting salt in it or deciding that, you know, I sprained my leg so now is the best time to go running. Right. You know, we're much more wiser right, about how we treat our physical bodies, but we don't use the same caution when it comes to our, to our psychological health. In other words, you'll see somebody whose self-esteem is bad, and they'll decide, I'm going to be really self-critical now. Well, actually, your self-esteem is suffering already. Why would you want to be self-critical? Why would you not be self-compassionate? So to not self-inflict psychological wounds, that's not something that's okay, yet we don't teach our children that that's not okay. We you know, that's something we really need to change in how we educate people. Okay. We do teach them to brush and to floss and all of those things, but right. we don't teach them in any way that, you know, this is the, 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 the manual for how you take care of your mind and your emotions, and, and we should. Um, another thing is that to really monitor uh, how you're feeling. If your self-esteem took a hit, because self-esteem underlies, it's got a separate chapter in the book, but it underlies a lot of these wounds, because when you're rejected, it impacts your self-esteem, and failure impacts your self-esteem and even brooding impacts your self-esteem because you keep brooding about negative things not about positive ones and so monitor your self-esteem if it's not doing well there are things you can do to boost it to make it do better and when your self-esteem is higher it actually works as a buffer it makes you more resilient and more able to you know you'll be less affected by uh, anxiety and stress and failure and rejection when those happen and you'll recover from them more quickly when your self-esteem is higher so you know monitor that if you're going to monitor anything monitor how you're feeling about yourself and take steps to, to, to boost it to improve it and the last thing I'll say is a lot of the exercises I suggest in the book at least and a lot of the things that you will find if you do this if you look for things online and in other kinds of books, 
do suggest writing exercises and do not be lazy. It doesn't matter if your penmanship is horrific or if your grammar is terrible or if it's going to be full of spelling mistakes. This is just for you. Express the ideas in writing. You will absorb them in a much more powerful way. They will have a much better impact when you do. And it, don't skip that step. Don't get lazy. That's a very important tool that you have to be able to use. We got it. Thank you so much, Guy Winch. You have a new book coming out, Emotional First Aid. When can we get our hands on it? The book is actually just out. Ooh, so good. It should be available now in bookstores everywhere and online everywhere. Um, independent bookstores, Barnes & Nobles, Amazons, uh, iTunes, downloads. There's an e-book, there's a hardcover, and there's even an audio book with my quasi-European accent. Very uh, nice. The content. They'll love that. Thank you very much for your time and your expertise. Thank you so much for having me. You're doing great work. Thank you. Bye. Wow. I feel all healed. I don't have any more psychological wounds. Not that I had any to begin with, but that was great content. You're going to love listening to that. A couple times you got to listen to that to get it all. But today we talked about emotional, psychological wounds. We learned what they are. We also learned four really good things I want you to take away from today. One is that there is no psychological wound too small. So please, they're all going to grow if you don't do something with them. So there's nothing too small. Address it. Put it in the right context. Extinguish it. Move it out of your way. Otherwise, if it doesn't bother you today, it's going to layer and it's going to grow and it's going to become a problem later on. So there's nothing too small. Also know that we have to distinguish when we need to treat these little wounds. Some will heal on their own left alone and we just keep an eyeball on them and some are going to need a deeper level of treatment similar to a cut. Some cuts you don't have to do anything with once you wash it off. Some you have to put a band-aid. Some have to be sutured. So looking at all of that will tell you kind of it's not going away or I'm not bouncing back. Get some help because small things grow. The other thing that we learned today was where do these psychological wounds and how they fall onto us and actually hurt come from? And some of that is by three layers we learned. Uh, one is the genetics, obviously, of how we're you know, brought into the world with our moms and our dads. Some of it is just how we're wired. The brain in general, and among all of us, despite genetics, is wired in a certain way for pain to feel like pain, whether it's physical or emotional. And then the third layer is whatever we live and the traumas that we go through or whatever has happened to us as we're nurtured and we're grown and we're parented, etc. So there's those three layers that will impact the way a psychological wound will feel and heal. So those are the things that determine where we go with it and how I'll heal versus you. But the bottom line is we have to know when we need to do something. But every little thing needs some kind of attention, whether it's just washing off that wound or it's actually getting some surgery to take it and put it all back together. And then the other last thing I want you to understand and really take to heart is how we handle these wounds is very important because at the end of the day, similar to a physical wound, if we don't do anything about it and we ignore something, it will continue to bleed and the blood goes all over. And we know that for many reasons, and we've seen it each, I'm sure, in all of our own lives, that if we don't do something about something, even if it's just bothersome a little bit, it's going to grow and it's going to bleed and then you're going to have a mess. So the bottom line is address these things early, get them taken care of and get yourself into a psychological place that you feel secure and you're able to really monitor yourself. So take a listen. All of my podcasts are out there for you to get. They're free. 
www.drsophie.com. They're on my new phone app. It's available on iTunes, Dr. Sophie On Call. Help yourself. They're all there for free. There's a ton of other great information. Always follow me on Twitter and Facebook. I'm all over the place. We're talking about all these current events. Visit iTunes. Download that full version of Andy Grammer's. Keep your head up. And the most important thing is don't forget to sweep. But you got to keep your head up. Oh, and you can let your head down.